0: We are uh, looking at faith that obeys this morning out of Hebrews chapter 11 verses 8 to 10. So you uh, can have your finger there at the ready as you're finding your way. Let me say, um, or perhaps I should ask really, what is it that you live for? What do you live for? That's an important question in, in that the answer tells you a lot about somebody, doesn't it? Everyone lives for something. The reason that's true is because the Bible portrays everyone as a worshiper. That's how God made us, to worship and to worship him. In the fall, humanity didn't cease to be worshipers by nature. That stayed the same. The only thing that changed in the fall was the object of our worship. As Paul would explain later in Romans chapter 1, Depraved humanity worshiped the creation instead of the creator, but they still worshiped something, right? So we're back to the question what do you live for? Uh, People answer it in so many different ways, we couldn't possibly account for all of them in the time that we have. My kids, my girlfriend, my dogs, skiing, traveling, knowledge, thrills, and on goes the list. Now, if you're a Christian, you know how you should answer that question. I live for the kingdom. And yes, that would be right. But be careful about answering too hastily, because the follow-up question to that is, is there evidence of that in your life? And since we all live for something, because that's how we're created, if you don't really live for the kingdom, then you'll soon show yourself to be either deceived or a liar. The first century congregation was not living for the kingdom, although they thought they were, and their drifting was clearly evident of that. The writer needed to rein them in and get them back on track, living for the kingdom, really. So in chapter 11, he presents them with a great list of Old Testament saints who demonstrated in no uncertain terms what it means to live for the kingdom. And this time, he singles out Abraham. Now, we've studied so far some very special biblical characters in Hebrews 11. We looked at Abel. He was the start of the godly line and by faith worshipped God. We look at Enoch. He was blameless, a blameless man that pleased God. And then there's Noah, who was the only man of his entire generation that revered God. It's hard to think that there's another person really that would hold a spot next to these guys, but there is and his name is Abraham. In fact, Abraham is the one among this list in Hebrews that the New Testament credits as being the father of our faith. It's with Abraham, you see, that God cuts a covenant that's really reiterated and fulfilled in the New Covenant. And no doubt it's because Abraham carries such significance for the church that the writer of Hebrews devotes the most space to him than to anyone in this entire list, not only Are there considerably more verses in Hebrews 11 that speak of Abraham's faith, but they correspond to the largest amount of Old Testament narrative as well, Genesis 11 all the way to 22. So what's so special about Abraham anyway? He wasn't the start of the godly line like Abel was or translated up to heaven without ever seeing death like Enoch was, or someone God started over with and repopulated the entire earth, like Noah. Well, the reason Abraham is so significant to us and why he's actually called the father of our faith, why Paul ties all those who are circumcised of the heart to Abraham and not to any of the others, is that Abraham demonstrated biblical faith and became the one individual, the one individual that God God chose to cut a covenant with that promised salvation to God's people. God would bless all the families of the earth through him, as it says in Genesis chapter 12. As different as these four men are in their places of significance in ancient church history... They are tied together, make no mistake about that. They are all part of the godly line of Abel that contributed eventually to Messiah. But I think that of all the Old Testament saints that the writer lists, the three before and those coming after Abraham, you'll not find a more kindred spirit than you will with Abraham. Genesis shows Abraham exercising genuine faith in everyday life. We can sympathize with Abraham, and you'll see as we go on in the next week or two to consider Abraham in more detail. We can resonate with him as he obeys the Lord in difficult settings, just as we must. And even more so now as we live Christ to the world in these last days. We have time to cover, I think, verses 8 to 10. Uh, this morning, and, and what they have for us, I know you'll find to be revolutionary. In fact, I, I have no doubt. So let's consider them one at a time. The first is very simple, very simple, and it's this. Faith obeys. Faith obeys. That's in first part of verse 8. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. He obeyed. Now, just for the record, we're talking about biblical faith that obeys God. And it's not complicated, yet many have complicated it today. Now, let's be sure of one thing with regard to genuine faith, faith that we have defined it as we have defined it in Hebrews 11, a certainty in the promises of God. It produces obedience. It produces obedience. The person with biblical faith will be characterized by a life of obedience. And if he's not, then... He doesn't possess biblical faith. It's that simple. Would you be surprised if I said that this truth, one of the simplest yet most profound in scripture, is one of the most confused and most confounded truths in Christendom today? Would you be surprised? No, I don't think you would. And you know that Satan has his hand in it. So many in the the body of Christ at large today are under the impression that faith and obedience are not inextricably connected, that they don't necessarily go together. On the contrary, they think that one can have genuine saving faith without ever demonstrating obedience at all in their lives, obedience to God. And there are seminaries that teach this, popular Christian conference speakers that preach this, and of course, dispensationalism, one approach to studying the Bible that is perhaps or arguably the most dominant among Christian Christians in America, teaches this. So if you have this, so you have this heretical view out there that says that as long as a person claimed at one point to have trusted in Jesus, he's a Christian, case closed, and this person can go on to live a fruitless life. Even an immoral life. And some have gone so far as to say that he can denounce Christ later on in life. And none of this makes any difference. As long as he made that declaration at some point, we can expect that he will be with the Lord forever. And that's the teaching. This thinking is wrong on so many levels, it's even hard to know where to begin to address it. First, it's obvious that this view overlooks the reality of false professions of faith, right? Many people over the years have confused, or confessed rather, Christ in times of duress, only to fall away after they've, they're free of clear and present danger. Also, and second, the Bible refers to those who exercise faith as, uh, in Christ as new creations. Paul explains that the old has passed away and the new has come. They have a new nature with new inclinations and desires to serve the Lord. They want to please the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul speaks plainly to the church. This is what he says. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor those habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such... Were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Implication? Implication is that having been redeemed, your life changed and you became something else. Christians are no longer who they once were before Christ. They are completely different, and the difference manifests in a life of obedience and change. Third, Ephesians 2.10 specifically teaches that that we are saved for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Both our conversion and our sanctification have been predestined, according to Ephesians chapter 2. And fourth, Christians who don't live a life that is consistent with their confession are actually called to account by the New Testament writers. They see that something just doesn't quite compute there. James is among the most severe. He tells the church that, well, faith without works is dead. And those in the church who carry on like the rest of the world are accused of having a friendship with the world that is really nothing more than hostility to God and amounts to spiritual adultery. That's James. None of this, none of this was true of Abraham. God revealed himself to Abraham in his hometown of Ur of the Chaldeans. And according to Joshua 24, verse 2, Terah, Abraham's father, served pagan gods when he lived there. So the encounter that Abraham, then called Abram, had with God amounts really to a conversion. But Abraham was not without a living testimony to the true God. In Genesis 31, verse 53, there is a a record there of Abraham's grandfather, Nahor, who worshipped Yahweh. So we don't know if this means that Nahor Nahor worshipped other gods as well. That's likely, since Ur was a very pagan place. Whether he did or not, Abraham had a knowledge of Yahweh, and perhaps even the a knowledge of the covenant of grace that God made with Adam and Eve regarding the seed of woman that is Messiah. We can be sure, however, that once the Lord did reveal himself to Abraham's family, they were all convinced of the truth, and they worshipped the true God only. So the point of Genesis 12, which is what the writer of Hebrews is referring to, is that biblical faith always without exception, generates obedience. By faith, when he was called, Abraham obeyed. What becomes apparent right away when you read the account of Abraham's conversion in Genesis 12 is that he had become a changed man. And as, as, as a new changed man, the Lord commanded him in Genesis 12, verse 2, be a blessing. You'll even read that he says in its a command be a blessing and the way that abraham would be a blessing to others in his now new converted life would be by telling them about the truth of god and his gospel you see the physical blessings that abraham would enjoy now from god cannot be separated from the relationship that abraham had with god through faith and obedience in other words, a genuine believer obeys, and when he does, he experiences the wonderful blessings of a redeemed life of, at God's hand. It all goes together. Not one of these elements, faith, obedience, or blessing, can be separated out or disassociated from each other, as I mentioned, is happening today in many Christian circles. In fact, Abraham was now responsible to transmit the message of salvation wherever he went. So the blessings of a saved life become the opportunities to evangelize. Anyone that might have heard in Abraham, of Abraham's bounty or have shared in it, say his relatives, his immediate family members, they would have had to have known, or they would have to know, rather, that it was the blessing from God. Abraham would make sure That he told him that. Faith obeys. Very important. Faith obeys. The writer builds on this with the second truth. There are three total. This is the second. Faith that obeys will abandon all for God's blessing. It will abandon all for God's blessing. That's the rest of verse 8. By faith, when he was called, Abraham obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he left not knowing where he was going. What follows in Hebrews 11 with regard to Abraham is a series of contexts in which Abraham confirms or proves that he indeed had faith in God. The writer obviously took the most significant of these events in Abraham's life to show this. And no doubt, in order to encourage those in his congregation, who were enduring persecution on a much lighter scale than Abraham ever did. And so the idea is that if Abraham overcame the worst case scenarios in his life by faith, you certainly can overcome anything of lesser severity. That was his point. So let's take a look. The writer tells us in, his first, in the first instance exactly how Abraham obeyed the Lord. It was, notice, by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he left not knowing where he was going. So let me give you the the context, all right? Abraham was 75 years old at this time when he was converted, probably prosperous, settled within the land, and had cattle in, in a thoroughly pagan world. This was Abraham. And when the Lord called him, Abraham left this world. He left the life that he had, all that was familiar to him, his relatives or extended family, and at an age when most today would shy away from such a life-changing move. But Abraham abandoned all this and followed the call of God. His radical departure was a life-changing act of faith to be sure. Now, Genesis 12.1 is very specific. God called Abraham to leave everything he knew to go to a place that he knew nothing about in order to receive God's inheritance. That's the the plain truth of Genesis 12.1. According to Genesis 15, verse 6, later on, and our passage in Hebrews, Abraham trusted God and left. He trusted God and left. No hesitation. He said goodbye to his old life. And the evidence of his faith was his obedience to the call to go, which is what is stressed in Genesis 12. So we see then Abraham, who was an old man by this time, well-established in society, probably wealthy, well-known, well-respected in his town, left it all behind to follow the gospel call of God which promised an inheritance that would far outweigh anything Abraham could ever experience in his lifetime. Isn't it true that Jesus calls followers to follow him at great expense, even at the expense of their lives? We know that, right? That he wants 100% devotion and loyalty right from the beginning. He wants you to follow him only. No divided loyalties. It's me or nothing. That was his message. And those, he would say, who lose their lives for my sake will indeed find their lives in the end. Conversion today is not understood in these terms, sadly. It isn't. But it's very much a departure from a previous ungodly lifestyle to a godly one. It is a forsaking of all that is familiar to us, which happens to be temporal and earthly. The gospel call to us is to leave the old loves for new ones, for new desires, new and radically different approach to living. It is a denial of self for Christ. It's for all intents and purposes a death of the old you. And a new resurrected you. It's a life that yields to the Lord before family, before friends, before spouses, before kids, before important people, before the government, before law. You are a Christian before you are anything else. And the word of God becomes our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. That's conversion, beloved. We understand that certain contexts in our lives do challenge this loyalty to our great God more than others, strongly tugging on us, trying to lure us away from a life of obedience. We feel that from time to time. But the promises that they make to us of a better life, instant fame and fortune, or better quality of life, or tranquil tranquility and calm existences, less headaches and worries, or maybe even a pain-free life, they cannot keep their promises. No, now that we're born again, we know, don't we, that what outfits us for handling that or any problems in life and turning them down, these, these lures away from the narrow way, what outfits us for handling These things and denying ourselves for the sake of the Lord and his ministry is our true and real relationship with God and the benefits that come with it. You know that there is no better life. You know this. There is no better life than the one with with Almighty God at the center of it. And you know that there's no greater pleasure in life than to be in the will of God and you, you know that you have his pleasure. Therein lies contentment. We all have experienced what it feels like to be out of the will of God. It's not pretty, it's not comfortable. So, the writer of Hebrews confronts his audience with some very simple but profound truths to live by. Faith obeys, he says. That is what it's designed to do. And in obeying, it abandons all for the blessings of God, everything. It loves God, it wants God. It wants what God offers more than self, more than the pleasantries of this earthly existence. The writer still brings us to a higher level of loyalty in verse 9 and 10, which I think you will find revolutionary. Unlike so many misguided churchgoers out there, we know that our faith produces obedience and that we must live an obedient life. We also know, unlike most, that the obedience of faith demands that we forsake all for Christ. We know that. Though we may fall short as loyal worshipers throughout our lifetime, we don't need to be convinced of this truth. Jesus calls for 100% devotion at conversion, for that is the gospel. But what you might be somewhat unfamiliar with, maybe, is the radical and revolutionary truth that ensures a dynamic, victorious, aggressive Christian walk, and it's found in verses 9 and 10. This brings us to our last truth of this passage that we'll consider today. It's this, kind of lengthy. God's earthly temporal blessings, his earthly temporal blessings amount to a mere foretaste of greater eternal blessings God's earthly temporal blessings amount to a mere foretaste of greater eternal blessings. And here's the last bit. We should be thankful for the former and strive for the latter. We should be thankful for the former and strive for the latter. Here's a curious thing. After Abraham was ushered into the promised land, he still lived as a foreigner there. Is that not curious to you? It says, this is what it says, 9 and 10. By faith, he lived as a stranger in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Now, this is such a great truth, and, and if you get your arms around it, you will be the spiritually better for it, I promise. This is revolutionary. First notice the relationship between verses 9 and 10. Before I introduce this or explain it a little bit more, make some observations with me. Notice the relationship between verses 9 and 10. It's causal, right? Verse 9 tells us how Abraham lived by faith. Verse 10 gives us the reason why he lived that way. Do you see that? That's the first significant observation. If, If you're going to have a good understanding of what's happening here, you need to understand these two verses and their relationship to each other, they're causal. The second observation is the rather odd statement that the writer of Hebrews makes about the way Abraham manifested his faith. It's specifically that he lived as a stranger in the land of promise. Do you see that? It's right there. Elaborating on that a bit more, the writer continues, as in a foreign land living in tents. Now, maybe you know or don't know that tents belong to nomads, They were constantly on the move, always moving around, never had a place to call their own. They didn't put down roots. Abraham lived that way in the promised land and with Isaac and Jacob, who were also fellow heirs of the same promise. So what's going on here? Abraham had reached the land that God promised back in Ur, that he would show him. He's now arrived. Why is he living like a stranger in the land of promise? Here's where verse 10 comes in, the the reason, right? It's the causal relationship. Verse 10 gives us the answer to that question. It begins with a causal preposition for or because in English. Abraham lived that way in the very land that God had brought to him to give him because he was still looking for the city which had foundations whose architect and builder were, were God, was God. What city is that, and where is it if it's not the promised land? It's the kingdom of God, and it's in heaven. Canaan, the promised land where Israel eventually settled, was not the place Abraham was ultimately looking for. It cannot be, according to verse 10. It merely symbolized the heavenly inheritance that God promised Abraham. It symbolized God's eternal kingdom that would be the inheritance of all believers. The earthly temporal land and rest that it offered simply pointed to the eternal kingdom that was Abraham's inheritance. Now, many miss this in their reading of Genesis, even in Hebrews 11. And you need to realize that Abraham's home in Ur that he left was not an inferior piece of property, okay? Real estate, you know, it's all about location, location, location. And most likely, it was superior to Canaan, the promised land. Abraham enjoyed a thriving civilization in Ur. As we already pointed out, he was a wealthy landowner. So it makes little sense that he would leave all of that for another piece of property that was at best only equal to what he had, and most likely it was much less than that. No, clearly what Abraham lived in anticipation of was the kingdom of God. Does this depreciate the land of promise in our eyes, or had it in the eyes of Abraham or the other patriarchs? Absolutely not. This land was God's gift to his people, who would inherit it through Abraham, and that alone is what made it significant. But in addition to this, it's what it represented that made it significant. A great inheritance to come. By entering the promised land, Abraham knew that the greater inheritance was a sure thing. Don't think for a moment that Abraham or any of these champions of faith thought that the physical promised land was the end of the line for them or that it was the great inheritance that the Lord had promised Abraham still anticipated something greater, a better country than what would become Israel and a better city that would become Jerusalem. And he demonstrated that by living in a tent as a pilgrim. He knew that the foundations of his life were not in some earthly location, but in the kingdom of God. Uh, It might be a bit confusing at times when we read the New Testament commentary on Old Testament passages and find there that there's more information in the New Testament commentary about the Old Testament passages that we can actually find ourselves in the Old Testament passage. Hebrews eleven offers some good examples, and one of them uh, one is this idea that Abraham was looking for a heavenly city. The Old Testament passage does not suggest this in very clear terms. Actually, it would be difficult to pull out that idea in any of the chapters of Abraham's narrative. Not impossible, but, but it's not that readily apparent. But we have to remember that the Bible, although it's made up of 66 individual books, each with its own theological point, is also one book as well. And the 66 individual books that make it up are 66 pieces of a unified whole that present this, the glory of God and the salvation of his people. So we should not be surprised when we find more information in a New Testament book about an Old Testament passage. Now let me also say that the Bible is authored by the Holy Spirit through human instrumentality, right? Now that means that everything that the human authors wrote from their own mind and hearts was ultimately what the Holy Spirit wanted. I cannot explain that. That's just the way it was. Therefore, every word in the original autographs is inspired, and that goes for the New Testament commentary and Old Testament passages. What the writer of Hebrews tells us about Abraham is really the Holy Spirit's commentary on what he had previously written in the Old Testament. It's really the Holy Spirit that gives us a glimpse of what's inside the mind of Abraham at the time of his conversion. And we must presume and we would be correct in presuming that at this point, given the data in verse 10, that God told Abraham about, the, about heaven in the context of the gospel before he left Ur. The gospel, you say? Yes. No one in history, beloved, was ever saved apart from the gospel, Right? God explained it to Adam and Eve. We already know that. Talked about it. Devoted a lot of months to that one. And we know that they explained it to their children, and it was explained through the godly line until Messiah arrived. Look, if Abraham believed God's promise about a heavenly inheritance, is it so strange to think that this eternal life that God promised Abraham was explained in the context of a gospel? Of course not. Not at all. As to how God communicated this, well, that we, we were not sure of. Either he spoke it directly to Abraham or it was already through someone in a godly line of Seth. But to be as concise as possible, Abraham trusted in the future work of Messiah and his glorious inheritance promised, that, that his glorious inheritance promised to anyone who does believe in Messiah. But here's the crux of ten. This is really the revolutionary part. What makes it so revolutionary for our spiritual lives, I'll explain it this way. Abraham, on the one hand, did not know where where the literal promised land was. It says he did not know where he was going. That's verse 8. So verse 8 says he left not knowing where he was going. On the other hand, he did know that ultimately God would usher him into his kingdom in eternal life. Why is that so important for Abraham to know That he was that he was through through faith in Messiah now a recipient of of an eternal kingdom. Why is that important? Because it's it's what made for a strong walk of faith. You see, once Abraham knew that he had inherited eternal life through Messiah, it made no difference where on earth God might lead him. Not one bit of difference. He can lead me anywhere he wants. It didn't, he didn't have to know because you cannot do better than eternal life. He knew that his entire life was now a pilgrimage that would eventually dead end into glory. That's why it didn't matter. In one sense, all roads that God brought Abraham through led to heaven. Here's how J. Adams puts it in his very practical commentary in Hebrews at this point. Quote, because he knew that the ultimate destination uh, because he knew what it was, he was able to operate so trustingly on the short term. He knew what eternal life, eternity held. Because of that, he would go anywhere and do anything God required of him in this life. That is the heart of the matter of faith because the eternal question was settled. The earthly one didn't have to be. Because Abraham knew where he was headed, he didn't need to know where he was going tomorrow or the next day. Wherever the the earthly route took him, it didn't matter because he knew that God was mapping out a road to the eternal city. It was not the land of Palestine that mattered, it was the heavenly country, the city in that homeland of which Palestine and eventually the city of Jerusalem were but a shadow, a type that counted. He's right. He's right. Maybe you're getting a sense of how living in anticipation of what belongs to you, an eternal inheritance, equips you to live obediently, even in the most trying of times. Once you have the ultimate in waiting, nothing else matters, and nothing else should move you. Here are a few applications. I'll I'll give just two that take this, this wonderful revolutionary spiritual principle the first one is this, when you know that you have eternal life to the fullest in heaven waiting for you, you're not only living in anticipation of it, but you will you will endure as a Christian everything that comes your way as part of God's ordinary way of bringing you to heaven. That's what every event that God brings into your life now becomes a root. We will be less concerned about our problems that we have because we understand that the course God maps out for us will bring us to our ultimate destination, heaven. We'll go right through the problems and right through the persecutions and right through the sufferings and right through the hard times. God converted you, and he's going to bring you from point A to point B. And the way he does, through the valleys as well as the peaks, are all part of his ingredients to get you from one end to the other. And knowing that you will be in the other should make the route by which God takes you somewhat insignificant. Shouldn't move you at all. Wherever God leads, that's where I'll go. If, you're, if you honestly believe in the eventual fulfillment of God's promises to you, those being full redemption in heaven with Christ and all that entails, then you can more readily conform to the will of God as it is laid out in his word. You see, what hangs Christians up in their forward motion into the unknown and the unseen is their short-sightedness of their faith. But if our faith is really our hope for, uh, for these unseen things, that is the kingdom, then it will motivate us into action, the kind that is described in verses 8 and 9. The writer tells us really to concentrate on the future if you want to produce obedience and godly actions in the present. Now let me give you one last application here. It's um, by way of verse 10. We believers are on the receiving end of God's blessings on this earth. We are. As Abraham was. Receiving the physical land of promise was just one of many blessings in Abraham's life. He had many blessings. And when you read the life of Abraham, you'll see. Until we go home to be with Christ, we are blessed, certainly just by being in Christ, but we, we also continue to receive God's blessing in tangible or certainly identifiable ways. They come to us in different shapes and sizes and are always suited to our particular needs, aren't they? Uh, A needed sum of money comes to us out of the blue. A job falls in our laps, a future spouse, opportunities, provision, protection, and so on. But as is often the case with many Christians in America, hear this now, they live from blessing to blessing because they have a wrong view of blessings. They see them as what makes life on earth worth living. You say, well, what's the matter with that? They, they see it as, as helping them to counter all the negative stuff that, that they endure, and it makes the Christian life all worth living. Well, the matter with that is that it misses the point entirely of the Christian life and puts believers really in a less than desirable condition as overcomers. There is nothing, beloved, nothing about our earthly existence that makes the Christian life worth living, and nothing on earth that is worth living for. That's pretty radical. Christians don't live for this kingdom, right? Last I checked. They live for God's kingdom. It's rather the fact that we will enjoy eternal life to the fullest someday that makes life now worth living. Our eternal inheritance makes persecution for Christ worth receiving and suffering worth enduring. We live for what is to come in glory, not on earth. Paul would tell the Corinthians that our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look at the things which are seen, but but at the things which are are not seen, for the things which are are seen are temporal, but we look at the things which are, are not seen, for they are eternal. Those are the things that were pre, uh, Paul was preoccupied with. Paul received affliction well because he was looking for a better country, that which is unseen. Having said that, let me give you a biblical view of God's blessings. They are nothing more than a foretaste of the joy and pleasure and enrichment that we will, ex- that we will experience to the fullness when we receive our eternal inheritance. That's what they are. Blessings tell us something about what's in store for us when we eventually get to glory. God gifts us with tastes of of a glorious life to come when he blesses us. And we should view them that way and give God thanks for them. Let our earthly blessings that God gives us in his own time and in his own way remind us of the infinite pleasure and the joy that awaits us in the kingdom. And push on. If you're healed of an illness, let it remind you of the glorified body that you'll receive in heaven. If you're satisfied by something out of daily life, let it remind you of the ultimate sacrifice of eternal life. Or ultimate satisfaction, rather, of eternal life in the presence of God. There's an interesting passage in Matthew 19, which we heard read in our scripture reading for this morning. There Jesus tells Peter that the disciples will experience blessing both now and later on. I don't know if you picked up on that. Peter asked the question, behold, we've left everything to follow you. What then is there for us? What is left for us? And Jesus said to him, I say to you truly that that you have followed me. And in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms, on account of me, will receive many times as much, and will inherit the eternal life. So we see the clear reference to eternal life in verse 28. There it is. The twelve disciples will sit on their own thrones in heaven in a capacity as judges. And at the end of verse 29, there's a reference to eternal life, right? An eternal inheritance. That is the most important part of what Christians have coming to them, an eternal inheritance. But notice also in verse 29, Jesus mentions that Christians will also receive much more than what they left for Christ's sake before the end comes. That means in your lifetime. During their lifetime, everyone who has left the family and farm for his name will receive many times as much. What does this mean? Well, John MacArthur, I think, says it uh, just as, as well as anybody else in his commentary on Hebrews. I'm quoting, When a person comes to Jesus Christ, he must often he must often have to turn his back on certain relationships, even with those who are very dear to him. Many times, his, con- his conversion turns his own family and closest friends against him. In some cases, even his, even to the point of, of seeking uh, his disinheritance or even his life, but the one who gives up everything for Christ's sake not only will inherit eternal life, but also the family of God in this present life. He will have a host of new fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, with whom he will forever be united in God's divine family. Whenever he, Wherever he goes, he meets spiritual loved ones, many of whom he has never seen or heard of before. Throughout the world, he finds those who will share his sorrows, encourage his spirit, and help meet his needs, material as well as spiritual, end quote. Those are great blessings. Those are great blessings. And I would say that that kind of blessing is not only a wonderful thing, and it is a wonderful thing to be part of the body of Christ and to fight the good fight with like-minded believers who encourage us, but it should still cause us, to long for heaven and the consummation of our faith where we will enjoy bodily, a body life perfectly. Let your enjoyment of your fellowship remind you of the sweet fellowship that, re- that awaits you in heaven, and that is what will drive you to stay the obedient course. Well, we asked a question at the start of our study. What do you live for? Which when directed to the the church, means are you living for Christ? Of course, the needed follow-up question to that one is, if yes, then does your life give evidence of living for God? You can be a genuine Christian and find yourself living for other things at times, like the first century Jewish Christians of Hebrews. In that case, they, like you or you, like they, I should say, need to develop this understanding of living by faith in the future promises of God. So much uh, that we can live for God in the now. And it is truly revolutionary when we do. Don't take your cue from American Christianity who look for things in this present life to make the Christian life worth living. You know, the social gospel looked to social causes to make it worth something. The prosperity gospel looks to good health and wealth to make it worth something. Other events uh, in in American Christianity look to the blessings of God to give their life meaning. And even that is short-sighted. This is why so many in the seeker movement of years ago, and still many now in contemporary churches, want to edit the gospel so that people will see that the benefits of being a Christian on this earth is worth being a Christian. But that is such a fallacy. What makes the Christian life worth Living is the full and perfect relationship that we will enjoy with a holy God in heaven someday because of the work of Christ alone. That will keep you seeking it, not anything here on this earth. Let me close with another question, and that is, if you're not living for Christ, do you want to? After listening to what Jesus offers both now and especially in heaven at the end of time, how could anyone not want to? Should anyone be struggling with that, I would urge that person to think of how infinitely better heaven will be in comparison to the sweetest and most wonderful experiences that he has in life. And at the same time, to think of how infinitely worse eternal condemnation will be compared to the absolute worst sufferings that he may experience in this life. There is nothing like eternal life. It's man's only hope and greatest motivation to live in light of it. Our Father, we thank you.